welcome to the Darling Pod. And I know I always sound excited about this week's special guest, but I really am. His name is John Rappaport. He's been very, very widely requested by by quite a few of my of my listeners. Um, John, I wanted to talk to you about your latest brilliant blog post where you talk about how you reckon that the vaccine uptake has been much, much lower than the official figures are suggesting. But before we before we go there, I wanted to tell you to tell us a bit more about yourself, because I think you, although you're, you're quite known in America, maybe the UK audience won't be so familiar with your work. For example, I, I see that you did you you were once nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Um, so you must have you must there must have been a stage in your career when you were actually quite mainstream. I was sort of on the edge, you might say. I was writing for LA Weekly, which was gaining popularity in Los Angeles in 1982, and uh, freelancing and writing a lot of articles for them. And some of that, you might say, was on the edge of mainstream. And I was taking assignments from different magazines and newspapers eventually, throughout the 1980s until the end of the 1980s, at which point uh, my pitches for articles were not landing. (laughs) The editors were saying, we don't want you to go there. The war in Afghanistan, uh, if you didn't have the right viewpoint about what was happening between Russia the CIA in Afghanistan, they didn't want the article. Uh, medical articles, especially, if uh, they were critical of vaccines or they were talking about uh, viruses that were overblown, they didn't want that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I backed out at that point. Yeah. And that sort of began the second career of working on my own yeah that's it i mean we've all been on that journey um and i was wondering what was the moment for you where you kind of turned you know was was it the war in in afghanistan or was it earlier than that it's a good question i think the 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 news outlets themselves were becoming more politicized. So it wasn't so much that my articles were changing or the viewpoint was changing. Mm -hmm. It was just, I was suddenly talking with editors who had a, a political point of view that they were pushing. And it was mainly, I would say, moving further and further toward the left. Big government has the answers. We have to share and care everything, uh, care about everything with everybody, everywhere, all the time. Yeah. Whatever that means. You know, so it was like talking with zombies. Yeah. I've got a story idea. Okay, what is it here? No, 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 no. Well, what changed, you know? Well, they were changing. It was like some giant mind control device was suddenly lowered down on media and everybody agreed it was now time to move further and further toward the left. 
Yeah. And then I said, that's it. I'm gone. Yeah. That's interesting because there are, there are two schools of thought on this. I mean, I get this a lot from some of my, my followers now. They say, look, what took you so long to realize that the media is corrupt? It's always, <laughs> it's always been corrupt. It's always been, been uh, you know, owned by, owned by the elite who are not interested in telling the truth, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I think you only have to look back, for example, to think that Rolling Stone magazine used to publish PJ O'Rourke. I mean, I've read his, his, his collected essays from Rolling Stone. This was kind of freewheeling, libertarian stroke conservative stuff. It, was, it definitely wouldn't be published by Rolling Stone now. And I think, you know, you think about Playboy used to publish long read articles. You know, they, they, they weren't political. They were just in, interesting stuff. So I think you're right. I think that there was a, a golden age of journalism where it wasn't so politicized as it is now. And I agree with you. It, it's, it's impossible to, to write outside the, the Overton window. The, and, and the Overton window seems to be very narrow these days in what you can write about, whether you're writing for a, a notionally conservative newspaper or a notionally left-wing newspaper. And not only that, but I'm sure you'll appreciate this. In this, quote, golden age that you're talking about, part of that was, could you write? Yes. Were you a writer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Totally. Uh, we don't care what you're saying, particularly, necessarily, but can you write? Can you use words? Can you uh, make an impact on people's minds? Yeah. Not just the drab consensus. So when P.J. O'Rourke was writing, when Hunter Thompson was writing, when a lot of other people were writing, uh, you know, I want to read this. I, I don't, I, I don't, it's writing. Yeah. Now we're supposed to be content providers. Yeah. And we're not writing language anymore. We're delivering text. Yeah. And you see above or below a headline I see on websites, which just absolutely blows my mind. In little print, it'll say, this is a five minute read. Yeah. You know, as if, well, <laughs> nobody has any time and it doesn't matter whether the guy can write or not, we're actually right. You know, it's just how long will my brain take to absorb the, the content of the text? And I even have people emailing me saying to me, could you please put a summary before every article that you write. So those of us who don't have time to read would just read the summary. Yeah. Well, you know, if I were under that kind of prohibition, I would have quit 25 years ago. Yeah, totally. I was thinking of another unfortunate consequence of this as well. When I, in my early days as a journalist, when I'd be doing a long piece, I would very happily have an intro, which, which, just sort of meandered its way into the topic. So you could just enjoy the feel of the, of the words and <laughs> you, you were painting a picture. It didn't really matter whether, whether it was entirely relevant to the, to the main point of the article. Nowadays, you've kind of got to explain what the article's about in the first, first paragraph 
or you've lost them. And I think as a result, journalism has lost a lot. You know, it's it's lost its sort of digressive qualities. It's lost its 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 literary element. I think it's all now mechanized and utilitarian. Yeah, you and I in that world would be two machines facing off now against each other. And we would just be exchanging signals that everybody who's watching the podcast would go, oh, yeah, uh, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And the other, I mean, what you and I are doing is, you know, the meandering introduction to whatever we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. But the other thing is video. Video has now, for many people, completely replaced reading. So they just want to see it. But if you ask them, what did you see in an informational video at the end? They'll say, well, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein actually had weapons of mass destruction. Really? How did the, uh, how did they make that point in the video? Well, I don't remember. Just watch the video. You'll see. Yeah. So it's a lot of people saying to each other, you've got to watch this video. But if you ask them for details about what happened in the video, they have no idea. They don't remember. It just moved on by. And so, you know, if you read something, you can stop. Well, I didn't understand that last paragraph. Let me go back. But if you're watching a video, you have to pause it. You have to, oh, where is it? Let me find a part. Nobody's going to do that. They're just going to let it flow through. And so, the literary quality, as you say, of words uh, just is is becoming more and more defunct. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, we, sh- we should talk about the biggest story in the world right now, which which the mainstream media is ignoring completely. I mean, this is isn't this isn't this the most extraordinary fact of our lives that the world is being destroyed. It is being taken over by this kind of globalist elite which is using the using the coronavirus the as an excuse to introduce vaccine passports and nobody's reporting on this nobody's nobody's telling the truth nobody in the mainstream media at all at all i mean how weird is that it's pretty much the weirdest thing i've ever seen yeah and i'm sure you feel the same way as well the, the word destruction uh, has a home with me because for the last year I've been saying and writing and screaming, don't you see what the restrictions are doing? Yeah. Where are the stories in the press about the people whose lives have been destroyed, businesses destroyed, companies destroyed, families destroyed by the lockdowns, by the the distancing by the shutting down of businesses, by the bankruptcies, by the economies of the nations just falling into the ocean and governments inventing more and more sky blue money out of nothing in order to bail out everybody and in the process make them completely dependent on the government. This is like, if you had said this was going to happen 15 years ago, people have said, well, we'll just write a novel about it because this could never happen. Yeah. But as you've been writing and, and 
as I've been writing and other people have been writing, this is happening in front of our eyes. Yeah. And then you see, at least in America, athletes going on television and saying, this is a great time to be home with a family during the lockdowns. And I'm really getting to know my family again, and it's wonderful. And then you see this opulent living room and the kitties are playing on the floor with the toys and the wife is there and it's all wonderful, you know? As if this is the reality that all people around the world are facing because their lives and the economies are being completely destroyed. I mean, these media outlets are virtually saying nothing about it, or if they are, it's on the back page or it's just a, a minor story. This is the main event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to enlarge a bit on that point you made because because you're the first person I've I've heard to say it quite so articulately. That in in the UK, you may be familiar. We've got tabloid newspapers with a with a tradition um, of defending of standing up for the rights of their readers of campaigning for particular causes campaigning against injustice now these campaigns may be confected they may be dishonest but nevertheless there is that kind of tradition of sort of crusader journalism in the uk i don't know about in the us every day in old times there would have been material for a half dozen stories on kids killing themselves um, in despair at, at, at the sort of mental issues created by the lockdown. There would have been personal stories about businesses that have been going, you know, for three generations, which had been crushed by this, this policy of, of, you know, of, of lockdowns. There is so much rich material for the newspapers to do the job and they are completely ignoring it. Now, what's your explanation as to why this is happening? Because I think this is unprecedented. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that question. Well, the editors and the publishers are obviously being controlled and or collaborating with government. Yeah. It's as if, okay, on this issue now, we're all in agreement, boys. There can be no defectors. Yeah. Nobody is going to suddenly start screaming on page one every day that the measures, the COVID restrictive measures are destroying the country and illustrating it with these horrendous stories of suicide and death and drug addiction and businesses going under. Nobody is going to do that, boys. And the boys, the publishers say, yes, I mean, or no, we're not going to do that. We're, we're all in this together. Yeah. At some level, that had to have happened because, I mean, I'm familiar enough with the British tabloids to know, as you say, that in ordinary times, they would have been screaming and hammering with these horrendous stories of human destruction coming out of the COVID restrictions. Yeah. So there's fear. I believe as well that these editors and publishers have that the government would be willing to suddenly reach in and snatch them from where they are with whatever degree of independence they have and say, you're an enemy of the state now. We're going to treat you like an enemy of the state. 
yes. in every way that we can, your taxes, your safety regulations, every way in which we can harass you and trouble you and destroy you because you've taken up an independent position on this issue yeah. of the COVID lockdowns and the destruction of the economy, we're going to cancel you unless you play ball. Exactly. It's the only explanation I can think of. So if we saw this behavior in, say, Putin's Russia or in, in you know, Communist Party controlled China, we would be, we're used to reading about this in, in, in our newspapers and, the, and they love pointing the finger and saying, look at these, look at these authoritarian, totalitarian regimes. They don't have a free press. And yet this is going on right now in our countries and nobody is pointing it out because the organs that ought to be pointing it out, the, i.e. The, the MSM, the mainstream media, are all bought and, and paid for. Number, I mean, I don't know whether it's the same in the US, but certainly the advertising spending in the UK, the government is now the number one advertiser in the media. It, before the pandemic, the alleged pandemic, it was, I think, about number 20. So, so number one, the government is bankrolling all these newspapers with, of course, taxpayers' money, because this money hasn't been plucked from a magic money tree. It's been taken from the taxpayer to bribe the newspapers to lie to the public. That's, that's a pretty poor deal. But secondly, it seems that, the, as you say, the government is not just applying financial pressure. They are also bullying, frightening these newspapers into... I mean, look, you and I became journalists because we were kind of... We couldn't get a proper job, could we? We, you know, we were unsuited to 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 to, to being in the to knuckling under and, and 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 doing as we were told in an office and and obeying orders. We were journalists precisely because we were misfits. And I don't understand how our trade, which is ought to be full of mis misfits, how how on earth has it has it allowed itself to become a bunch of compliant serfs? That's the weird thing. So weird, so weird. I keep trying to explain it to myself how these so-called journalists and reporters have fallen into line completely. And I can't really bridge that gap and, and say, except bought and paid for is really, I think their bottom line because their editors are saying to them, either tacitly or overtly, these stories over here are just not gonna fly. Yeah. You have to be reporting these stories over here. Yeah. And that means if you wanna keep picking up a paycheck and paying your mortgage and your car payments and sending your kids to college, yeah. that's what you're gonna to have to do. That's number one. And number two, which is certainly a book-length story at the very least, but to try to boil it down, something on the political left did a kind of sleight-of-hand magic trick some years ago. Because at least in America, it, part of what it meant to be on the left as a journalist maybe 30, 40 years ago was going up against the establishment. Yeah. Giant corporations, uh, even big government on occasion, certainly when it came to fighting the Vietnam War 
etc., etc., etc. But eventually, pushing in that direction magically turned into actually supporting big government. Yeah. Because big government became to look more and more like the political left. So journalists began to see that and say, well, we're winning, therefore let's join the government. Yeah. Failing to realize that when anything that is an organization becomes more large than a certain size, it's going to be completely corrupt. And they just got suckered into it completely and then they couldn't get out. I mean, or they're unwilling to get out. Yeah. Where, where do you see all this going? What's your fear? Rebel or die. Yeah. Totally with you. I mean, there was a guy, he's still around, named Scott Atlas, MD. Trump put him on his coronavirus advisory team near the end. And Atlas was saying the lockdowns are unscientific. They don't work. Masks don't work. It's ridiculous. Uh, the entire fear porn campaign about the virus is absurd. And when he finally left the coronavirus task force because he was pushed into a corner and he really had no clout and he was disillusioned. The last thing he said was, the only solution is people are going to have to rebel. The people are going to have to rebel against all of this. Yeah. I don't see any other way out. No. You're absolutely right. There are, I think, no white hats who are going to come to our rescue. And I, I fear that includes President Trump. I went through a phase where I thought Trump had a plan. He was going to come back and 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 save us. But what, what's your theory on Trump? Do, do you think, I mean, for example, why did he get behind these so-called vaccines, which aren't vaccines? Why, why did he push that? When after all, the whole, we know, you know, and I know that the whole coronavirus thing was devised as a way of ensuring that he never got reelected. So why did he get sucked into the charade himself? He thinks, first of all, the business of America is business. Right. So any business is automatically good if it's successful. He's got that in his head, which is a real flaw. So for him, the pharmaceutical industry is a business. Well, it's generating billions and maybe trillions of dollars. This has to be a good thing. Right. The vaccine is the answer. It has to be a good thing, but let's make it a great thing. Let's do warp speed. Let's make this a gigantic triumph somehow. There is that thread of thinking in him, for one thing. And the other thing is, I think he was somehow just genuinely cowed at the very beginning of the 
COVID fakery. Yeah. Because in his first press conference, he came out there on stage and he said, you know, I was talking with Dr. Fauci off stage. And, you know, what I got from this is this is another flu season. Because the CDC says, you know, anywhere between 30 and 65,000 people die a year from the flu. And, uh, you know, that's what we're dealing with here. And, And I was thinking, would you please keep pushing that? Yeah. But of course he didn't. He caved in completely because of Neil Ferguson. And what Ferguson, financed by Bill Gates, brought from the Imperial College of London in the way of a predictive model of how many people were going to die at the beginning of the summer of 2020 in the UK, 500,000 to two and a half million in the US. The man had a complete track record of failure. I mean, abject failure as a computer modeler, Neil Ferguson. And yet when this news was transferred from Fauci to Trump, was there no one else in the room? Were there no advisors to say to Trump, hey, maybe we should check on this guy Ferguson to find out if he's a really good, no, nothing. Trump just completely caved in and he still won't admit it. He still won't say to his people, who I mean, millions of loyal followers, I did it. I screwed up. I let this COVID thing go to unbelievable lengths and in the process half destroyed the U.S. economy. It's my fault and I'm going to right the ship now. He'll never say it. He'll never admit it. He'll never say this vaccine, which is highly destructive, was his baby. He just, his ego is too great. Mm. I think that's a good take. And of course, there's something, um, well, morally wrong about about his his um, persisting in this pretense that that Operation Warp, Warp Street is a, is a great success. Because, okay, you've got Trump voters all over the country who are being persuaded by his ongoing propaganda that it's perfectly safe for their teenage boys to get these jabs, which are going to give them possibly heart problems and that it's perfectly safe for for you know people in their 50s to to take this 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 jab even though there's a there's a, a distinct possibility that it's going to give them blood clots which are going to be fatal or or, or at least life ruining so you're right I, I i think that there's something deeply culpable about trump's stance on the vaccines which I, which i think in a way undermines his record as a president and, and his credibility as a, as, a, as, a, as a contender for 2024. I think it's up to us to get out of this mess. No, one is, no one's going to save us. I agree. I mean, the, the people in the U.S., for the most part, are not aware that there are massive protests against the vaccine, against the vaccine, uh, you know, health pass, Uh, happening in Europe and other countries because the U.S. press has a blackout, a censorship on all of that. So for the U.S., most people feel like, well, if I were to step out and begin a 
join a protest wherever it might occur in the U.S., I would be alone. Not the case whatsoever. But, I mean, this is ad complete censorship. What's happening in France and Germany and what's been happening in the U.K. and even in Australia. Yeah. In the way of protests and uh, resistance uh, is heroic and astonishing. And it has to be understood by people all over the world that if everybody rises up and says no, they're done. They're toast. It's over. They can't function in the face of that. There is no form of police state that can win that war if enough people say no. I'm not going to take the vaccine. Uh, the vaccine is not safe and effective. Sorry, that's your propaganda. I understand that, but I'm turning away from it. Uh, and as far as the mandates are concerned, where I have to take it, or I have to have this passport that says that I'm okay, forget that. Enough people turning out in the streets and saying, no, that's not going to happen. And they're done. They're finished. And if that doesn't happen, then there's a chance that we're finished, at least in the short term. Yeah, well, the short to medium term, I mean, I don't see, as you say, if we don't resist, what does it mean? It's going to mean, number one, vaccine passports as a kind of route to everything from, from going to the gym to going to the supermarket to, to travel, obviously. That is, is then going to lead to um, sort of biometric chips, which are going to you know, introduce a Chinese-style social credit system. Uh, this is all evident. But, but I, I tell you what, what the turning point for me was, the bit where I, where I, I sort of completely lost my faith in everything. And it was, it was quite recent. It was the fact that the media gaslit the world into believing that the election was not stolen. I found that extraordinary. I found it extraordinary that not a single newspaper reported on the the Dominion voting machines, on the on on the kind of truckloads of 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 ballots which were were shipped in from from New York or wherever. That the the scale was so enormous, and and the the cheating so flagrant on every level, and yet still our frank and fearless press completely failed to report on any of this stuff you know even in, even conservative publications even you know ones that are sort of have a reputation for being edgy none of them reported on it now for me that was the beginning of the end and we're seeing this continuation in in the coverage of you know look at look at the 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 um adverse reactions to the vaccines you would have thought that this would be a big deal, that people are dying in their thousands from these jabs. Where do you read about this stuff in the, in, in the media? I, almost nowhere. That's right, almost nowhere. I know what you mean about the election. In the US press, it eventually got to, well, of course we know that the election was fair and honest. Of course it was above board. Of course, the whole issue is buried and gone and only lunatics keep bringing it up with absolutely no evidence whatsoever. You know, because the hatred uh, in the press against Trump was so deep and so vile and so complete from top to bottom 
that for anyone to even, you know, who is associated with a mainstream press outlet to even hint at or suggest that there might be a single ballot in, in, you know, in Pennsylvania that was fraud would be enough to get him fired, blacklisted, canceled forever, couldn't find a job, ends up digging ditches somewhere, somewhere, you know. I mean, it got to be that. That's the way that got. And now, when you add up in Europe and the U.S., the adverse the vaccine injuries that are being reported, the vaccine deaths that are being reported, they're absolutely staggering. And there is a whole body of literature that says if you want to actually get an accurate count on these numbers, yep. because most people don't report such events since they don't even know there is a reporting system, yep. you should multiply the public numbers by 10 or 100, depending on whose study you read. That would push the numbers of vaccine injuries and deaths, I mean, not only through the roof, but through all the roofs. And in every vaccine campaign in history prior to this one, at least in modern times, would have been more than sufficient for the government to say, stop, this campaign is canceled. We have to investigate very deeply what happened with this vaccine and nobody is permitted to take it at all. In the 1976 swine flu debacle in America, which had to do with a hotel in Philadelphia and a few people that got injured and so on, I think it was 26 or 45 deaths from the vaccine, which was developed in record time, that had the government saying, stop the vaccine campaign. That's too much. We have to stop it. It's too dangerous. The implications are too bad. Now you've got, you know, 11,000, 12,000, say, reported deaths. Multiply that by 10, 120,000, multiplied by 100, over a million. And vaccine injuries in America, around 600,000 reported. And in the EU, many more than that. And nothing is happening. As you say, nobody's even trumpeting this on the front pages of tabloids or press outlets anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me where, I, I, I think I, I agree with you on this. Where, where did you get the idea that um, far fewer people have taken the vaccine than is being um, claimed in, in public? Recent article, Stat News and other outlets officials now these are public health officials are admitting on the record that in the u.s stocks of vaccines in the 50 states are going unused not just a little but vastly unused and they're about to expire many of them which makes them completely useless And what these public health officials are confessing to is not, oh, they gave us too many vials to begin with, more than we would ever need. No, they're talking about these stocks of vaccines going unused because of declining demand across the board, as they say, in the 50 states, which to me is a massive clue that many, many people are 
refusing the vaccine. That it's not a gigantic success in terms of the PR and propaganda that are urging people to get it. That this isn't just a matter of hesitancy, that many people are dug in and absolutely refusing the vaccine because they see the truth about it. Yeah. And in addition to that, and this is what you could call budding research, but I urge anybody who's interested to try his hand at it in Europe, US, anywhere. Look at the official figures for the percentage of people that are vaccinated in a given state in the US or say country in Europe, write down that percentage and then go to statistics of the, the counties or the provinces, the subunits, which are also reporting the percentages of people that are being vaccinated and see whether that whole picture adds up or whether when they publish the figures for the state of California or you know France or whatever, that they're completely overstating the percentage of people vaccinated when you look at how they're breaking it down. I have a feeling and a few clues that that may be the case. Yeah, I'm just about to look because somebody's provide me, provided me with some anecdotal evidence which confirms what you are saying. I'll, I'll, let me try and find it without giving away their identity. Let's have a look. Um, good. This is good, yeah. Okay. Yeah, this, is, uh, th this doesn't give anything away. Some good news. We use an independent track and trace system for our events. This means I can see everyone's VAX status. I can therefore tell you that about 40% have not been VAXed. Age profile of our events, probably 25 to 75. So if I'm right, many more have not been jabbed than government saying. I don't know what the well, hospitality industry, but that, that is interesting, isn't it? That's a clue. All right. Mm. You bet. Mm. And other people in that industry could follow up on this. Yeah. They have to paint this picture of, oh, it's a resounding success and people are flocking to get the vaccine and so should you. But if the truth were known, then people would understand you're not alone when you resist the vaccine, when you say no. There are huge numbers of people, more than you could dream of, who are doing just that all over the world. Yeah. And I'd add one more brief comment, and that is people who say the vaccination rates around the world are soaring and they're incredible. They've never traveled extensively around the world. They have no clue what these places are like. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about massively efficient and effective governments in any country of the world, yeah. for one. And two, when you cover enough land, you see, wow, this is the world is a very varied place. There are giant cities, there's huge swaths of country and desert and mountains and valleys and, and these towns everywhere. And I mean, are you serious? China is saying they've really injected, you know, or they've already injected more than a billion doses of vaccine. Is that really true? Or are they just making that up? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, John, cut to the chase here. 
what do you think is going on? It, 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 give me give me the situation in the nutshell. Who's who's making making these decisions and where are they going? Well, all the political decisions are being made by globalists such as the World Economic Forum and by heavy hitters backing them up, such as Bill Gates and his foundation and money, George Soros money kicking in. Um, these are massive organizations that have been put together and constructed. When I say globalism, I mean the sense and the resolution that the only way that planet Earth uh, is going to function is if we have one governing management system for the entire planet. Hmm. That's the objective, the visible objective, and that people have to be slaves. However you want to cut that, just like people in China are slaves. They're all slaves in China. Hmm. I don't care how much money they're making. It doesn't matter. The government at any point can intervene and would drastically, violently, forcefully, if they thought that individual was going against basic principles of communism and so on and government. This is the political direction, no question about it. Hmm. And I've been warning people since 1987 that the medical cartel is the most effective long-term slave master in the world because it appears to be flying under no political banner, completely neutral. We're only here to help. We're only here to heal. We're made up of pharmaceutical companies, medical schools, doctors, hospitals. We do great work. We're, we're trying to heal everybody. And some of those people are, particularly in crisis emergency medicine, where they take somebody who's in pieces on the street after an auto accident and they put it back together because they know how. But they try to parlay it across the board into we know exactly what's happening with people from the cradle to the grave in terms of chronic illness, in terms of these strange uh, syndromes and conditions we claim exist. We're marketing experts. We sell drugs. The drugs are extremely toxic, but don't say anything about that. And so are the vaccines, but don't say anything about that. The medical cartel enlists people from cradle to grave, actually from womb to grave. So an ordinary person throughout their lifetime would be diagnosed with 40, 60, let's say separate conditions that supposedly exist, given toxic treatments for all of them. Any side effects would be caused, called the result of the condition, not the drug. This is a gigantic system that as with COVID, we now see has actually taken over. Yeah. This is no longer just a theory that I happen to be spinning or other paranoids are warning people about. This is actually happening. And so I see that as corruption down to the very core. And one issue which we don't have time to talk about here, but I have to say it. My research since 19, let's say 87, has also involved looking at the entire field of virology. Is it a science or is it not a science? When they say they've isolated and discovered a new virus, do they really know what they're talking about or not? And in the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's my conviction for which I've offered much evidence that they have no idea what they're talking about. 
that there is no conclusive proof whatsoever that this virus even exists. And when you look at how they supposedly isolate it, how they sequence it, and I've talked to many doctors and scientists about this, if you will look below the surface far enough and say to yourself, okay, they say they've isolated the virus. Okay, they say they've sequenced it. Now, what do they really mean by that? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. You find that when you explore those things, your mind is completely and utterly blown. Yes. That's all I can Well, what do you think it is? I mean, is it a fabrication completely? Or? There's many things that are welded together very cleverly to give the appearance of something new that has never been seen before caused by a virus. For example, when you see the number of flu cases or deaths plummet from, say, an estimated 60,000 to 634 mm. in two years, you know that what's called flu is now being relabeled and repackaged and exported into this new category called COVID-19. Yeah. And that's, we're now talking about well over a million cases where this is easily possible to do. Because if you actually look at the basic symptoms of COVID-19, they're no different from flu symptoms. Ditto with pneumonia. Ditto with what's called COPD, which is pulmonary uh, obstruction, yeah. chronic, that is supposedly the third leading cause of death in the world. If you look at these gigantic blocks of so-called disease that are traditional, mm. you see how they can all be exported at will without a blink of an eye into a new category called COVID. And then we hear suddenly all these people are dying that never died before. No, <clears throat> they're dying, but they died before for other reasons, which are traditional reasons. That's the beginning of the story of why all these people are dying. There are other reasons as well, such as the scandal that's now erupting in England about uh, the use of what I call Versed, or I don't know how it's pronounced, Medozolam, a sedative drug that's used on the elderly in nursing homes to basically make them immobile and kill them and destroy their will to live. And then they die and then it's called COVID and that's what's written on patient files yeah. and they're counted as COVID statistics and deaths. So there's many games that are played to make it appear that this is brand new and that new people are dying everywhere. Yeah. Not the case. A lot of people when when um they hear arguments like yours they'll say yeah but what's the motivation why would they want to turn us into slaves why would they why would they be doing any of this shit? surely surely <laughs> surely surely these people want a prosperous global economy um where you know sort of human ingenuity can can create wonderful new things for the delectation of you know and we can all become enriched by it What's your counter to that? Because it is kind of mystifying, isn't it? <clears throat> well, it's sort of like asking, why did somebody take out a gun on the street and shoot somebody instead of walking up to them and saying, hi, neighbor, 
Are you having a good day? How can I help you? Yeah. The front of the people who are doing the slavery operation doesn't look like the guy on the street who pulls out a gun normally. And that's what puzzles people. Well, look at Bill Gates. I mean, he looks like my neighbor, Sam. He kind of looks like the old puppet Howdy Doody in America. And he's got glasses on and he wears suits and he talks intelligently and he wants to save Africa. So how is it possible that he could have any other motive than what he lets on? Yeah. And uh, Klaus over there at World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, I mean, okay, I mean, he's talking about a good future for everybody. So how could he possibly have something else in mind like slavery? Yeah. Well, that question bespeaks a naivete, a vast naivete about the world, number one. And number two, these people believe that you and I and the rest of humanity are basically wild biological machines, misprogrammed and out of control. And if we're not stopped, we're going to wreak havoc upon the world and there will be no longer any kind of order or structure or control. And so therefore they have to intervene and reprogram the machines so that we all fall under the rubric of, you know, Huxley's Brave New World ultimately. Mm. And we are controllable and happy. And if we're given a certain amount of pleasure versus pain, and the formula is adjusted correctly, that the overwhelming majority of us are going to feel satisfied. That we have no higher ideal or consciousness or spirit or soul than what's my pleasure pain ratio today? And if it seems to be on the plus side, I guess I'm going along with the show. Yeah. And this comes back to where we started about what happened to journalism and, and the literary world. Because when people lose sight of William Blake, of Yeats, of Shakespeare, of Dostoevsky, of greatness, and what that actually means, and we're now dealing with text and content providers and uh, shrinking consciousness and illiteracy, then you can sell people pleasure versus pain as a slave master. You can say, well, look, the government will support you. You just have to fall in line and obey. You'll have food. You'll have the heat most of the time. And, uh, you know, you'll survive. Yeah. And the pain that we mete out to you when you disobey will be less unbalanced than the pleasure you get from being able to live your life however you live it. Yes. Okay, sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah. I think, John, we should do a whole other podcast because we, we've, we've been, because it's a kind of introductory podcast, we've been just skittering about the surface here, <laughs> but it would be really interesting. And I know you'd be, you'd be, you're the man to do it with me, to do a deep dive on how our culture 
reach this point and we can talk about the feminization of our culture where where the preference is for security over the sort of the male male risk that's one of them the debasement of our intellectual traditions the debasement the dumbing down of our education system it's all led us to this point has it not it has indeed and i would love to do this and ask you uh, you know these questions as we well do that. your uh, point of view I love talking about that. I'm ready. Yeah. I'm okay. sure. Any anytime. Because okay, so so let's end this one by talking. Let me tell you my concern, and you can tell me whether there's going to be any solution to this. I worry from what we've seen so far. We we've, we both agree that only we can save ourselves. Now, from what I'm seeing so far, very few people have woken up to what's going on. Everyone thinks it's going to be normal soon. If only we can deal with that. Delta variant or Lambda variant. And if only people take enough of this wonderful new shot that everyone's, you know, that's protecting everybody, it'll all be back to normal. The economy will recover. There'll be a kind of a V-shaped recovery or whatever bullshit they want to want to uh, fool us with. Um, and yet the time is running out. And simultaneously, our one hope, which is, I think, that people wake up to, to how dangerous these vaccines are, and that they become alive to the consequences of taking them. Um, time is running out. I'm not seeing that resistance emerging. And I'm also seeing a media which is denying people access to the information they need in order to be able to rebel against this corrupt system. So can you, can you paint a happy picture for me? Uh, give me any optimism? <laughs> Don't laugh, uh, like well, that. Well, again, the protest... The protests in Europe, uh, I, I say, are a very good sign. There are still people going to the beach in Australia. Even, I mean, that's turned into East Germany now. Yeah. And yet there are people who are very resistant still. So these are good signs. And I think the evil ones have already crossed the line in terms of how far can you push people before they feel that they have to rebel. I think there is that line somewhere and it has been crossed and, there, and the people who are pushing the line are not stopping. I mean, Boris Johnson is completely insane Como is completely insane in New yes. York. De Blasio, the mayor of New York. These people are absolute psychotic criminals. They're not going to stop. So for a ray of hope, I would say you can push people far, farther and farther and farther, but there comes a point where something is going to happen the tidal wave is going to turn around. You're right. Was it you who said that the reason that they're pushing so hard and they're not going to stop is because at the moment, the unvaccinated are the control. And so long as the control exists, uh, we're an embarrassment to them. We're, we are, we are, we are living proof that you can take the, you can not take the vaccine and yet amazingly stay alive. And they have to eliminate us in one way or another. Yes, I said it, and I took it from, I think it was Zero Hedge. Somebody else said it. 
And I thought it was a great point. Exactly right. You know, a year from now, let's say there are 20, 50 million of us that are in some way or another visible to the people around us mm. who are saying, yeah, I never took the vaccine and I'm feeling just great. I didn't get sick. I'm not sick. I'm not going to get sick. Uh, I see what happened to your cousin and uh, his wife and the other people that they knew. So all I can tell you is here I am. This has a, you know, a, a control group like that has a ripple effect that doesn't stop. Yeah. And that's why they're being so desperate about vaccinating everybody right now. Just briefly, since since you mentioned it, have you got any theories on why why Australia? What why Australia seems to be experiencing this authoritarianism more strongly than anywhere that save possibly Canada? Why is it that why are they going for the five eyes nations? I don't know. They have a history of this. Uh, the people who made a couple of films about the connection between vaccines and autism. Went to Australia, a couple of them, to give lectures. And uh, it's kind of a little complicated story, but they went there, they gave lectures, lectures were well attended, some were canceled, the government got very upset and nervous, uh, kicked one of the people out of the country, out of the country, and I think told her never to come back again. Other people who were going to talk about vaccines and autism tried to get into Australia. This was like, I don't know, five years ago. And the government just went nuts. We're not letting you in. You're a danger. You're a criminal. I mean, the, the, the pharmaceutical connection to the government over there must be so powerful. Right. That... You know, they don't want to let any light in the darkness there whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the same with the, um, the climate change industry, which is a, a precursor oh, to the, the whole big farm. I mean, it, it's all connected. It's all lies. It is connected. And there's one other thing about it, which I think makes this possible. Very big land mass, very small population for that land mass somewhere around 23 million, which, you know, you can find a metropolitan area in uh, several countries these days, which if you stretch it out far enough, there's 23 million people there. Mm -hmm. So the government feels we can control these people because look, we can isolate them. There are not that many of them. We can squash them. You know, it's not like trying to control 350 million people so they get fanatical about it over there. Yeah, yeah. John, I've so enjoyed talking to you. You're absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And everyone who was urging me to get you on the podcast, thank you for, 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 for making me do the right thing. I really want you back. So, <laughs> so you, I, um, I'm really glad to have met you. Uh, I've read your columns and I've said, Somebody in England can write. <laughs> build a wall around him. Yeah. Uh, protect this man. Build a statue. 
oh, don't give them ideas. I'm, I mean, I'm really worried about these kind of FEMA type camps that they seem to be building. They're calling them prisons, but I wonder whether they're kind of Panopticon style punishment units. For- yeah, no, I didn't mean that kind of protection. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But thank you, James. It's been very enjoyable. Well, thank you. Uh, may I remind my lovely viewers and listeners that if you enjoyed my stuff, don't forget to support me on Patreon or Subscribestar or via my website, dellingpoleworld.com, where you can buy one of your special, uh, a special friend badge and support me on PayPal or by Bitcoin. No one, no one seems to give me money on Bitcoin. I, I like, I like cryptos still, uh, you know, until they get captured by the, the regulatory state too. Um, anyway, John, again, thank you. Please, will you come back for another? Um, we can do the, a deep dive next time. It's absolutely. And can I say absolutely. how absolutely thank I you. you? I you live in San Diego, don't you? Not anymore. Oh. I live in an undisclosed area on the East Coast now. Ah, uh, do you? Yeah, but I, I lived many years in San Diego because San Diego's got the world's best climate, hasn't it? I think one of them. Yes, you know. The winter to summer, you hardly even notice it. If it rains, it's a, it's something, you know, what is this wet stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that you had to flee California. I'm sorry California got so destroyed by the politics that it's no longer had to get out habitable no i don't blame you i think a lot of this there are going to be massive movements in america aren't they i mean people are fleeing illinois and so on they're all everyone's going to florida or um yeah. texas uh and then i guess they're going to secede well, I'm, think- a little worried about, I'm a little worried that the people who go from new york to florida and new jersey to florida they know why they're escaping yeah but they're so crazy that when they get to Florida, they might try to actually vote for the people that are going to put back the very thing they escaped from. Yeah. Got to watch out for those people. Well, we'll talk about that more in the next podcast. Um, thank you so much, John. It's been really fun. And have a, have a lovely rest of your day. You too, James. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.